Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 425. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Hope y'all's quarantining is going pretty well. Maybe our story this week will help. Think you'll enjoy it. Another original Drabblecast commission for Women and Aliens Month by Darcy Little Badger, called Unlike Most Tides. Before we get into it, though, I just want to take a minute and thank and point out our amazing editor, who's not only piled through hundreds of submissions and brought you all sorts of fantastic stories here on the Drabblecast, but has personally curated our Women and Aliens Month stories, both this year and last. Sandra O'Dell. I first met Sandra, heard her name, in the slush pile, when she submitted a story to us in the Drabblecast as a writer. It was a story called Go Into the Chapel, back in 2010, with episode 156, and it was so great. Here's a clip. Pastor Williams closed the good book and raised his hands. Now, 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 I now pronounce you husband and wife. He said proudly. You may kiss the bride. Emily smiled, leaned forward, and no sooner had the newlyweds kissed, lips to pseudopod, than began to swell, his tentacles a quiver. He grew glistening and wet. There was a zip and a snap as the ruby cummerbund gave way. The groom bulged, swayed, and with a rubbery squeak, he popped like a bubble from a prize water gum. <laughs> Emily's smile was radiant as she picked the pieces of her husband off her face. Her belly began to swell with consummation and effect. Right then and there, Jackson Arnold wiped off the back of his hand and swore he'd never pick another nose for the rest of his days. The right side of the chapel surged forward, tearing the top and waving their tentacles. They congealed around Amelie with best wishes and moist sounds. Clasping the best man's hands and patting him on the back with antenna until he screamed like a little girl and dove head first under Mimi's skirt. Betsy Walker shrieked and giggled as someone long, green, and fuzzy began to swing her around like a baby sister. Sarah Beth rolled her eyes and stamped on wet fangs until they cleared a path. Whatever. I'm going outside to smoke. Pastor Williams endured the throng, the Bible over his head and out of Holmes's way, greeting and nodding in his best Sunday fashion. When the damp crush filed out the front doors with Amelie and Betsy Walker in their midst, and Betsy's mother in a panic not far behind, he stepped around the pulpit and moved to the left side of the room where everyone but the mother of the bride sat in stunned silence. Find that one in our archives at Drabblecast.org for the full deal. It's wonderful. After that, she found her stories being picked up again, and then again, Just Be in episode 205, Blue, episode 260, Listening to It Rain in Drabblecast 339. You know, after a while, as an editor-slash-publisher, you start to realize that certain writers really get what you're looking for. So after our relaunch in 2018, Sandra was my first go-to to ask if she'd be interested in joining Team Drabble. 
I was extraordinarily stoked when she said yes. The people who pick the stories you hear have always been the people who started out writing the stories you hear, and no writers ever sold more to Drabblecast before becoming an editor than Sandra. She gets that weirdness is a genre that's defined by being undefinable. Horror, comedy, sci-fi, romance, fantasy, these aren't the terms that matter to us so much. We just want to bring you stories that are all or none of those things that you'll remember, think about, and enjoy. You get to decide what shelf you want to put them on. Sandra's always gotten this, but more so as a writer herself, Sandra's always cared about writers. Sandra's made Drabblecast an incredibly diverse market. She's brought you authors of color and backgrounds that I'd never even heard of. She's fleshed out and polished ideas with those authors that created real masterpieces for our market. She sees talent, demands talent, of course, but looks for more than just that. It's definitely been inspiring to me to work with her. Honestly, it's easy to get busy and stressed out and dismissive when you're knocking out tons of slush, but Sandra takes the time. In a world where most editors drop your story in a folder if it's close but not quite perfect, Sandra stops to take the time to help the right story get there. She sees authors as people, not just their story submissions, and we've benefited a lot from that. All this, of course, is to say that Sandra's ducking out now as editor after a solid two years, because I guess no good things can last forever. I just wanted to eke out a minute here on the cast where I managed to not rant about giant squid or Mongolian deathworms to say how much I've appreciated Sandra's awesome work and contributions to the cast. A real unsung hero if you're a fan of Drabblecast, and if you're a fan of doing the extra work to showcase new writers, diverse writers, new work, diverse work. We could publish really killer versions of greatest hit short fiction all day, and I'm sure y'all would love it, and I would love it because it's lovable. But you get original stories like today's, too, from Darcy Little Badger, because Sandra reached out and Sandra made it happen. Sandra, on behalf of all the weirdos throughout the Drabbleverse community, we salute and thank you. Pretty sure you know the right address to send your next story to. And speaking of Darcy Little Badger, let's get into it this week. We bring you Unlike Most Tides. Darcy's a part of the Lapan Apache tribe of Texas. She graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Geosciences from Princeton, and also graduated with a PhD in Oceanography from Texas A&M University. Currently, Darcy works as an Earth scientist, supernatural horror writer, and scientific editor. She mainly writes comics, blogs, and journal articles. Find a link to this talented as hell writer in our show notes. And so without further ado, we bring you Unlike Most Tides by Darcy Little Badger. Unlike Most Tides by Darcy Little Badger. The prima donna sun has not yet risen to outshine every other star in the Milky Way. Overhead, a flash of light arcs between Orion and Taurus, the hunter firing at the bull. With a grunt, Matilda lowers her kayak and admires the streak of light across the sky, thinking of her childhood in Los Angeles. There, shooting stars, most stars really, except for the terrazzo and brass ones on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, were rare and wondrous. Things are different now. Matilda still considers the stars to be wondrous, but rare? Not a chance. Living in solitude against the edge of the land, if she ever feels like stargazing, she just has to glance up on a clear night. 
Matilda notices another shooting star, this one low, as if surfing the horizon. Two or more in one night is typical, but two in one minute must be a meteor shower. It's vaguely unsettling. Sure, she can fill several encyclopedias by listing more likely deaths than flattened by a space rock, but her cove is well protected from earthly dangers, and she respects the ocean well enough to avoid its violent moods. A wave brushes her boots. Matilda lowers her kayak on the hard, damp sand and settles into the boat. With a few firm scoots, she's out in the water and then paddling past the surf, thinking about falling stars, calculating the likelihood of an unlikely demise, wondering how quickly it would take for anybody to notice she was missing. Days, maybe? Weeks? Depends on the mailman, really. Maybe she should adopt another dog, one who enjoys swimming and can pull a lassie if she runs into trouble. It has been three years since Bucky, gray with age from his muzzle to his eyes, passed away in his sleep at the foot of her bed. A good death, but lord, she misses that fuss bucket of a German shepherd. Bucky was a barker. He barked when the mailman knocked on her door, when a mailman on TV knocked on a door, when anyone looked at him, and when gnats farted. He was a perfect dog for her peace of mind, and the silence of his absence reminds her of the sky above Los Angeles. Both hide so much. With calloused hands and practiced strokes, Matilda paddles out of the cove. At the cusp of sunrise, she drops weight near a twelve-foot-high stack, her favorite fishing spot. In no time, she has a fishing line in the water and pours a mug of coffee from her steel thermos. She'll catch dinner, if she's lucky. Until then, she settles back to enjoy the sunrise. Sunlight may hide the stars, yet reveals many closer details including a darkness in the water around the kayak that Matilda at first mistakes for the shadow of a sea stack. No, the bruise-like patch extends towards the east. She swallows the last bit of her coffee and leans as far as she dares over the side for a better look at the black-gray discoloration. The stuff is too diffuse and uniformly gray-blue to be oil, has a shoal of squid inked everywhere. No way. She'd absolutely notice a thousand panicked squid. She must have paddled straight into a red tide. The algae that bloom off of her cove are toxic. They kill fish and make seafood unpalatable. Had the bloom been there when she caught and ate that snapper Wednesday? Parasites can be nuked with heat, but toxins are often much more resilient. She felt fine, but any catch today might be contaminated. So much for her fresh fish for dinner. Damn. She starts pulling up the anchor line, foot by foot, her calluses resisting the burn of the rope. A dog barks twice in warning. Bucky? Matilda sits rigidly upright and lets the anchor line slip between her fingers. The water sloshes against her kayak, the morning otherwise silent. No, had to be a seal barking. Had to be. There's movement in her peripheral vision. Matilda spins the kayak with a single thrust of the paddle, squinting against the painful brightness of the low sun. A pale mound bobs in the distant water. A body? No. Yes, a dead body, bloodless in death. Matilda paddles towards the shape with the urgency of a paramedic attempting to save a life, as if she can miraculously rescue the drowned person by reaching them before the current sweeps them into oblivion. She cannot. The frenzy of uninformed strangers disperses before supper time. Alone with her own thoughts and the afternoon calm, Matilda settles in with a bowl of leftover barley stew and a mug of tea. 
The gaggle of paramedics, police, and too many others to name are finally gone, but it's no out-of-sight, out-of-mind situation. Their incessant questions play on mental repeat. She can't focus on anything else. She'll finish her stew. And then... Her kayak. She'd left it languishing on the beach, and if she doesn't bring it up, it will belong to the ocean by flood tide. She balances a plate over her stew to keep the gnats out, shrugs into a windbreaker, and is out the door and rounding her stilt-elevated beach house. Its shade of yellow resembles buttercups when she's in a glass-half-full mood. Today it reminds her of piss. She follows the footpath through the wild grasses and coastal weeds with thick waxy leaves to the sun-bleached wooden staircase that plunges down the cliffside to the beach. With a hand on the rail, she descends with steep steps. Her kayak is near the landing. She stoops, reaching for the carrying handles, but an incoherent bubble of sound, like a voice half-heard through a wall, swells over the crashing waves. Matilda straightens. Seeing nobody on the beach, she walks to stand the crescent-shaped waterline. The rising tide, wave by imperceptibly closer wave, is erasing evidence of footsteps and chaos from the sand. Matilda is grateful for its work, but worried that the red tide will be drawn into her cove and trapped. It's closer now than it was in the morning. A swath of water between the pillar-shaped sea stack and the land is inky gray. It's a shadow, a stain. What else does it carry? Matilda rubs her face, uneasy, remembering what the body looked like. Bloodless white skin and red hair and golden bracelets tight as manacles around swollen wrists. Wearing jeans and a yellow t-shirt but barefoot. Why barefoot? Were her shoes still hidden in the red tide, waiting to drift ashore? What about a purse, a smartphone, a scrunchie, earrings and socks and a necklace? What else did the ocean take from this woman? Will Matilda find red hair coiled inside her fish dinner or between grains of sand? There's a cliff down the coast, a favorite of college parties and midnight rendezvous. Often casualties of the parties, empty beer bottles, plastic hot dog wrappers, wash onto her beach. Is that what happened to this woman? Is that where she came from? Did one drunken misstep send her to Matilda's cove? That's not what happened. The voice has a child's pitch with an adult's restraint and comes from nowhere. Matilda turns full circle. Nobody in sight, not even a gull. Where are you? Who is she talking to? There's no one there. The no one answers. In water? You are not. It wasn't an accident, the child insists. The air stings Matilda's nose and esophagus. It's thick and sits too heavy in her mouth, bitter with metal and brine. She gags, drowning on land, choking on air. Retching for breath, Matilda drops to her knees and tries to cough up liquid that does not exist. Her vision blurs, colors fusing into a homogeneous gray. A different voice, a woman's voice, says, My ex-boyfriend killed me. In an instant, Matilda can breathe again. She scrambles across the sand and up the wooden staircase. The child shouts, It wasn't real! Come back! I'll explain! She wanted you to know! The farther Matilda runs from the water, the softer the bodiless pleas become. She falls through the atmosphere of a bright blue planet, her body cocooned by violet flames. The blazing star of her passage is extinguished by the cold abyss of an ocean. 
Their wisps of gray cells drift among and within creatures as delicate as blown glass. In the murk beneath her naked feet, tentacled arms dance in perfect synchronicity, puppets hopping to the same line. She's connected to the multitudes within a vast network. The gray cells flow through her, becoming her as she becomes them. The cells carry her soul into the living ocean, neurons in a conscientiousness that spans galaxies and a billion minds. Matilda counts off her symptoms on her fingers. So, the shortness of breath, metallic taste, terrible dreams, and voices yammering in my head are symptoms of stress? Yes, her physician says. He has a soft voice and crinkles in the corners of his eyes that hint at genuine compassion when he smiles. Go home, drink plenty of fluids, and rest. If that doesn't fix you, we'll reassess. Matilda asks, adjusting her disposable gown. It keeps slipping down her left shoulder. Now, prompted by her impatient tug, it overcompensates and falls down the right. Matilda looks longingly at her shirt and bra, which are piled on a black chair in the corner of the examination room. Can I get blood tests now, though? I read online. The physician chuckles. Well, that's your first mistake. I read that the neurotoxins and red tides affect the human nervous system. My symptoms are the worst near the water. Is it really coincidental that I got sick after paddling into red tide? You mean on the day you found a poor girl's corpse? He asks. Matilda hesitates. Well, yes. Have you vomited at all? No. Then it's not plankton, Matilda. She gives her gown another sharp tug, scowls. What is it? I've dealt with stress before. Of course. Who hasn't? Well, the point is I've never fainted after having a conversation with nobody. The physician folds his hands in his lap and leans back. His office chair creaks, rocks, and bumps the exam room wall. Have you found a body before? Or spent all day hosting the police? She rarely spends all day hosting anyone, but does not admit that out loud. People make assumptions when they learn she lives alone. The kind of assumptions that cause a physician to double down on his hysteria diagnosis. No. Well, as I said, if the symptoms persist, we can reassess. Matilda's gown slips again. She grits her teeth, recovers her shoulder. These don't actually fit anybody, do they? The physician shrugs, smiles. One size fits all. On the drive home, Matilda turns to the radio as a distraction from the $40 copay to be told, drink plenty of fluids and a rest. The body of a woman was recovered from the ocean on Tuesday morning. We have no further information at... She spins the volume dial to zero, a familiar chill returning. The radio has no further information, but she does. Somehow she does. Andrea, Matilda says. The woman's name was Andrea. She had a deep voice and was killed by her ex-boyfriend. The truth settles in her bones. She grips the steering wheel, trying to remember to breathe. Waiting out red tide is like having a staring contest with a shark. Every morning for a week, she looks through the attic window with a pair of binoculars and checks the ocean. The gray discoloration orbits the sea stack, as if ensnared by the gravity of the limestone pillar. Its volume is barely decreased. At this rate, it will take months for the red tide to vanish. The physician was right. Had to be. Toxic plankton cause fish kills, and there aren't any dead fish washing onto the beach. 
But stress doesn't explain the way she feels now. Jumpy, distracted, as if somebody is snapping their fingers next to her ear. Her sleep is deep and uninterrupted, yet her dreams linger vividly in the morning. Swimming through flooded canyons, crusted with bioluminescent algae that glow blue, violet, and green. Floating through black pockets of water beneath miles of million-year-old ice. Tumbling down waterfalls that become rivers, that become oceans, that become waterfalls again. Twirling among chains of diaphanous dancers and through underwater cities built from the silicone bodies of alien ancestors. Always at the end of her dreams, Matilda emerges from the water and steps onto her beach, where a woman, her face concealed behind a curtain of soggy red hair, sits in the abandoned kayak. How can I help? Matilda asks. You're dead. Come closer, Andrea says. We can barely hear you. Come closer to the water. On the seventh morning of her self-imposed house arrest, Matilda can't take it anymore. She blinks. The shark wins. Matilda needs to confront the cove. Bucky used to wear a bouquet of metal tags around his neck that jingled when he ran. Rabies vac, name tag, microchip alert. When it became difficult for him to hold his water through the night, he stood beside Matilda's bed and shook his head until the jingling collar woke her, as if saying, Get up! Let's go! Matilda hears that familiar jingling now. She hurries out of the house, taking the stairs more quickly than is strictly safe, her hands enticing splinters from the wooden railing that lodge painlessly in her calluses. At the bottom of the stairs, she stops on the loose, debris-littered piles of sand near the edge of the cliff. Her kayak sits a foot away, almost undamaged by seven days of neglect. There's a spatter of gull droppings on the hull and an inexplicable clump of crispy seaweed draped over one carrying handle. A majestic black-backed gull perches on the tip of Matilda's kayak. It cocks its head first one way and then another. Hey, you found my body last week. Matilda grabs the kayak paddle in startled self-defense. This can't be happening. But it is. Andrea? How the fuck are you a seagull? The bird caws, sounding suspiciously like a laugh. I'm not the gull says, but you freaked out the last time I tried to communicate through the gray matter, so I recruited this bird as a stand-in. Matilda straightens. Actually, I freaked out because I started drowning on air. The gull lifts its wings, mimicking an embarrassed shrug. My fault. I wanted you to witness my last moments, not feel everything. It's, it's a learning process. Having a conversation with a dead woman through a seagull can't be happening either. But again, it is. So Matilda takes a rule from the kayaking rule book and goes with the flow. You did drown. The gull bobs its head. Yeah, and if I hadn't drowned in the gray matter, I'd be gone for good. Matilda looks toward the stain. What is it? She asks. And what are you now, Andrea? How are you talking to me now? This time the answer comes from the air. It is everything and nothing at once. The child-pitched voice says, We are... A pause. I struggle to explain. I'm struggling to understand, Matilda says. Let's both just do our best, okay? Softly, the child continues. The gray matter is... 
It's not of your world. It's a medium somewhat like the yarn in your sweater, continuous and malleable, just as your planet, with its own body, provides the building blocks for trillions of unique life forms. The gray matter carries multitudes. Matilda holds her ground. She won't blink. Not again. That means my dreams about the oceans? They're what? Yours? Our memories. She feels a pang of claustrophobia, the near-panic desperation of a fish in a net. What do you want from me? The gull ruffles its feathers and says with Andrea's voice, One favor. Tell the police that my ex, Albrin Cross, is the son of a bitch responsible for my death. You were half right. He shoved me off that cliff. He can't get away with this. He gets away with everything. Why didn't you tell the police? Matilda asks. There were several here last week. The child voice responds. We cannot communicate with outsiders, minds who are not connected to us. Excuse me? Matilda interrupts. When did I join your transgalactic network? When you ate us, the child voice explains. Through the bass you murdered three weeks ago. She flinches. Um, murdered is a strong word. Don't worry, the murdered bass lives within our network and its content. Furthermore, the link between your mind and ours will soon fade. The half-life of gray matter is 200 days, and we cannot replicate inside your body. Can you replicate inside the ocean? She wonders. Not this ocean. All right. She does a rough mental calculation. If the volume of the alien tide decreases by 50% every 200 days, it'll take years for the stain in her water to vanish. Will you help me? Andrea Bird asks. If Matilda reports any of this nonsense, the police will laugh her out of their station, flag her name as an unreliable source of information, as one of those women. It doesn't have to be your word against his, Andrea assures her. There may be evidence. We've noticed Albrin mucking around near the cliff several times this week, dragging a net in the shallows. He's looking for something incriminating. Gotta be. Why else would he return to... Matilda cuts the bird off with a wave of her hand. Fine, fine, but let's get some things straight. First, stop fussing around my brain. If you pull that mind-reading shit again, I'm moving to Iowa. Understand? The gull bobs its head. Matilda takes a deep breath. There's no turning back now. Second, I'll help, but we're doing this my way. No police, not yet. The next time your ex starts lurking near the water, give me a sign, but stop using Bucky for that. I love my dog. What are your plans? The child voice asks. Oh, you'll see, Matilda promises. Just tell me one thing. How well can you control that bird? It's fairly easy to sway, the child voice explains. Good. I'll need it to follow me when we act. A dog barks right next to her ear. Not Bucky. More like Lassie. Follow me, Timmy. Matilda sets down her knitting and glances at the clock beside her. 3.30. Well, that was fast. He must be desperate. She heads to the beach and collects her newly cleaned kayak. The wind darts from east to west and pries at the loose strands of hair in Matilda's gray-black braid. Smells of brine and sea foam mingle with the zinc perfume of her sunblock. 
The gull circles overhead as she pushes past the choppy surf toward the sea stack and then settles on the back carrying the handle of the kayak. Don't cause a mess, Matilda warns. I just cleaned. I can't make any promises, Andrea says. Birds gotta do what they gotta do. Ugh, right. Well, which way am I paddling? In response, the alien tide unfurls from the stack and flows smoke-like through the surface ocean. It leads Matilda south, down the prevailing current, to a rocky strip of land just a half-mile away from her cove. A twenty-something man in waders with a fishing net and a bright orange bait jacket stands at the shore. Matilda has never seen him before, wouldn't know him from Adam, yet she recognizes him through the knee-jerk surge of Andrea's anger. Howdy! Matilda shouts. How are you doing? Albrin glances up, nods once in greeting, and then starts rolling up his net. The gull squawks and beats her powerful wings. He's getting away! Trust me, Matilda mutters to the bird. She waves her paddle in the air. Hey, wait a second. I, I found something. Is this yours? The man pauses, looks at her hand. Found what? He calls back. What? Matilda hollers. What did you find? With her free hand, she taps her ear and shrugs apologetically. Say that again? He charges a step into the shallows. What did you find? I put it in this bag. She holds up a canvas grocery sack filled with rocks. I'll throw it to you. No, 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 don't, don't. Even in Matilda's days pitching on her college softball team, she couldn't have made the throw from her kayak to land. The canvas bag plops in the water, sinking six feet and settling on the sand. God damn! The man chucks the bucket and net behind him and kicks off his waders. He jogs into the water. The gray tide swirls above the canvas sack, waiting. Get the bird ready, Matilda says, watching Albert approach. The power of his breaststroke hints at a man who's comfortable in the water. Now? Andrea asks. Almost. Matilda waits until he's nearly over the bag, until the water is deep enough to swallow him from head to toe. Now! The gull dives and plops heavily on Albrin's head, its pink feet tangle in his dirty blonde hair. Sputtering, he tries to swat the gull away, but it bites at his hand, wings flapping. Even the best swimmer will choke on a mouthful of water. The alien tide flows through him. For a moment, Matilda can see through Albrin's eyes, a flurry of wings, the silhouette of an old woman on a kayak, then understanding, a connection, the realization that Matilda knows about his crime. He can sense it through the network. Andrea shouts, I'm still here, motherfucker! Turn yourself in! I'm going to haunt you forever, you fuck! But he doesn't seem to hear her. Why doesn't he hear her? Albrin dives beneath the water to escape the gull. Matilda hears his thoughts as if he were right behind her. She can't tell anyone if she's dead. The child voice says, The man wants you dead, Matilda. He's fixated on it. We can't reach him. I know. Matilda stows her paddle, curls her fingers around the heavy steel anchor. I don't want to do this. Don't make me do this. Even to herself, the target of her request is unclear. The murderer? The network? Only one listens. As Albrin approaches, his body a blotch of tan under the water, the alien tide contracts around her kayak. It shifts from gray to black, turning a dial in her brain. 
Anger burns hot and fast, pulsing through Matilda's mind to the gray alien tide. The violet rage spreads in splinters, reflections in a house of mirrors, projections to every non-human living being on the planet connected by the alien tide. Fish, birds, seals. Albrin hesitates. His head bobs above the water. What's happening? Life surges around him, coming on their own alien tide. The razor-sharp edges of salmon, halibut, and sharks together, circling a maelstrom of bodies and minds. His eyes widen with a touch of fear. I don't understand. You probably never will, Matilda tells him. Albrin glances back at land, indecisive. Is it worth it? Can he make it? Matilda feels something brush his leg, and then the adrenaline rush as he swims for the kayak. A canoe won't save you. A canoe won't save you. But it might save me. The ocean says otherwise. Around him, the surface whips into a froth. Matilda closes her eyes and sticks her thumbs in her ears, but she can feel the violent ripples of the feeding frenzy as the many, made one, tear him to pieces. When her kayak stops rocking, she opens her eyes. All that remains of the murderer is a dispersing cloud of red within the gray alien tide. The journey home is painfully slow against the current. Her arms and shoulders ache. The rest of her is numb. The gull hitches a ride on the carry handle, and they travel in silence for a long while. Then Matilda asks, What now? The gull tilts its head to one side. What will you do? She clarifies. Get more unfinished business done on Earth? No, Andrea says. There's a place in the Dewdrop Galaxy. It's peoples living in swimming villages. The planets spin so slowly they can always remain in the sunshine. That's where you want to go? For a while. Their scholars enjoy meeting new species. A sudden, horrifying thought. Is your ex now part of the network? The gull ruffles its feathers. No, he chose death. Matilda tries to find comfort in the thought. There isn't any. I'm surprised he had a choice. Everyone gets one, Andrea said. You can join us too, Matilda. There it is, the possibility she dreaded. She can see the cove now. Her house is a flash of yellow on the cliff. To Matilda, today, it is the color of the sun. She nods at her house, her home. I basically traded my kidney for that place. The gull squawks once in laughter. Not a joke. My cousin Hilly has it. We were a match. The child's voice sounds from nowhere and everywhere. You charged your cousin for an organ? No, I'd never. Matilda now looks at a crescent of sand on her beach, contemplating the time and power it takes to make confetti from rocks. Some grains may even be space dust, dark flecks of ferrous meteorites. What time and power brought those to Earth? Hilly's grandfather-in-law put me in his will. The place used to be a bed and breakfast, you know. He probably expected me to inherit both his house and his profession as an innkeeper. But a career in hospitality is my ninth circle in hell. I was going to sell the property instead. Why didn't you? She pauses, spinning her kayak away from the land to face the gray water of the Atlantic, which spills beyond the bending horizon. After all these years, the sight takes her breath away still. I saw this. The ocean? More than that, 
I had seen oceans before. My family used to visit Santa Monica Pier every summer. But do you see any packs of friends in matching bathing suits or surfers or children with big plastic beach balls? Not a soul, Bertie. When I witnessed true solitude for the first time, I felt like Superman in the sunshine. Strong, you know? The gull tilts its head at her. Do you hate people? She shakes her head. No, they're mostly fine, just exhausting. Your kryptonite. It is what it is. Matilda spins the kayak around and heads to shore. There's introverts and then there's me, and for the longest time I was happy here. You aren't happy anymore, says the child. Matilda keeps her gaze on the shore. When I look east, part of me knows that the Atlantic doesn't last forever. It ends, and there's a coast, and there's people on the coast, millions of them. But that doesn't matter, because I can't see them, and they can't see me. You want us out of your head, the child and the woman speak at once. The gull, freed, alights and flies away. Matilda puts her back into every stroke. More than that, if you carry any of my thoughts, destroy them. Sever every connection between us. I want to be alone. Are you sure? The child asks. You'll have no second chance. Statistically, we may never find your planet again. Certainly not in your lifetime. Thank God, Matilda says. Yes, I'm sure. I've always been sure. And they are she no more. Matilda is Matilda once again. It doesn't say goodbye, and for that she is grateful. At her back, the alien tide disperses wisp by delicate wisp. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Man, solitude, security, feeling disconnected or interconnected in strange new ways. I can't imagine what kind of relevance or reflection opportunities this story might have today. Let's go now to our 100-character story winner this week by Twabble Mastermind Swomi Nono. Here goes. He stumbled towards me, and I froze in fear. Suddenly, he was only two feet away. I screamed and ran, abandoning my groceries. Wow, crazy when the world turns an ordinary, everyday kind of behavior into a traditional horror trope, huh? The call is coming from inside the house, hopefully sheltering in place and all. Try writing one yourself. Stories exactly 100 characters, not counting spaces. Post in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the Twabble section. You might be next week's winner. While you're there, dip into conversation about this week's story and others. Check out weird news articles and a massive library of community Drabbles. All sorts of good stuff. Get to know the Drabble community. We're on Twitter, at Drabblecast, where we post these Twabble winners early each week. We're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all Drabblecast, where we regularly post musings, updates, weird videos, or bizarre what-have-yous. We don't do it for all that social Instagrammy business ad content stuff. I'm not nearly savvy enough for all that shit. It's just about spreading the weird. 
And speaking of which, the Travelcast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Spread the weird, tell a friend. If you like the Travelcast and what we do, the stories, the mission, the ethos, the idea of a small independent market that pays writers, voice actors, artists, all operational costs out of pocket to bring the world cool weird shit, consider donating to the Travelcast off our website, travelcast.org. You'll find support options there off the top bar and the side. You can buy Travel merch there, like t-shirts, pins, mugs, print anthologies. And you can also donate to the Drabblecast in any amount with PayPal or credit card, one time or for an automated monthly subscription. That really helps us out, gives us an idea of being able to forecast a little bit about upcoming sales in future months. We pay all our authors professional rates. It's an important part of what we do. So we're talking 200, 300, 500 bucks a story sometimes. Same with voice actors, artists. You help a lot of creative people when you chuck a little change at us. And we greatly appreciate it. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Susie O. Susie paints magical scenes so her mind can escape while her body's quarantined in plague-ridden New York City. Our program this week was brought to you by Sandra O'Dell, Bo Kyer, Tom Baker, Adam Pratt, Melissa Harvey, an endless field of Pez dispensers, but nary a single Pez, Samantha Henderson, Jason Smith, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, you'd absolutely notice a thousand panicked squid.